If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. During the Second World War, an estimated 2,000 babies were fathered by African-American GIs stationed in Britain. As they grew up, these mixed-race children faced discrimination in the streets and ambivalence from the government, and many were given up by their mothers. Their childhood experiences are brought together in Lucy Bland's book, Britain's Brown Babies, the title referring to the name given to these babies by the African-American press at the time. And I spoke to Lucy to find out more. Thanks for joining me. Your book looks at the stories of children who were born to black GIs and white British women during the Second World War. So how many of these mixed race children were there in Britain in the Second World War? And why did you want to study their stories? Well, I don't think anyone's absolutely certain how many there were. I mean, an estimate is 2000, but I actually think there are more because I've just keep finding more and more people come forward. But you know, it's, it's very difficult to know. Well, when I first heard about it, which is way back actually in October 2011, when they had this three part series on called Mixed Britannia, which is about mixed race people in Britain, the second one opens with uh, George Allegai, the presenter, going off to meet his brother in law 
who was one of these children. I thought, this is extraordinary. You know, I knew nothing. I'd never heard of these children. And then I discovered no one had written about them, really. It had just been tiny little bits of information here and there. And I thought, you know, that actually so many people know a huge amount about the Second World War, but they don't know about these children. And it's a really important part of Black British history. So I just thought it'd be really good to actually try and meet some of these people. So as you say, you interviewed uh, many of these wartime babies who are now in their in their 70s, if I'm right. Um, what was that experience like? Um, how did you find them as well? Well, I found them through various means. Um, I, I first of all heard about something called GI Trace, which is an online um, self-help group that help people trace their GI relatives. So the, the term GI, which means government issue or general issue, no one's quite sure, but it, it actually means American servicemen and generally men. So it's a, it's a term that's been around for a bit. And this organization was set up actually on some, you know, in the 1980s by someone on their kitchen table. Um, so, you know, this is before the internet, trying to find GI relatives. You have to formally join this, it's all free. And I've just put a kind of statement saying, if any of you or know of anyone who father was a black GI um, in the war and would like to talk to me about your story, that would be fantastic. And quite a few came, a number came forward and it sort of snowballed. And what I really found fascinating was that when I started talking to people, many of them said, I've never told anyone any of this before. And you know, they were growing up often in, in, really not knowing any other black people. If they were kept by mothers or grandmothers, they were generally told very, very little about their father. Sometimes they were lied to, told your, fa- your father died. Sometimes they w- were said, oh, I can't remember his name. I'm extraordinary, you know. I think that these mothers wanted to kind of move on because they weren't allowed to marry these um, black GIs. The black GIs, all GIs had to get permission from commanding officers to marry um, their their girlfriends. And um, in fact, many were already married as with women, but you know, those that were free, they weren't allowed to marry. That The commanding officers would say no. And the rationale, if they were pressed, was that back in the States, there were then 48 states, of which 30 had anti-miscegenation laws, laws that forbade marriage between whites and blacks, so they simply weren't allowed to marry. So I think a lot of these women wanted to move on. So many of them didn't, you know, they they really knew very little about their fathers. They felt very confused about their identity. Many of them didn't really even have a sense of what it was to be black, and they were name-called a lot, but many said, well, I didn't even know what in what way I was different. It seems extraordinary to us today. So I think many felt they felt, well, they were racially abused often, but they also felt that kind of sense of lack of belonging because they weren't fully accepted as British, but they were British by virtue of having British mothers. Uh, they were growing up in, in often very white areas because before the Second World War, there were only about seven to seven to 10,000 people of colour across the country, and they were mostly in places like ports, like Liverpool and Cardiff and London. And many of these children were growing up in the countryside or small villages or small towns near to these American bases. And so they didn't really have, uh, they had confused identity, confused sense of belonging. And they often didn't, you know, didn't know how to identify themselves. I mean, in a sense, they, some who later did meet 
um, people from the Caribbean often felt they weren't accepted then either because they weren't West Indian, they weren't black enough. And these were the kind of, I'm, I'm quoting what many of them said, but it was extraordinary how so many felt that they didn't really realise they were part of a much bigger community. Meeting others now, as they have done, and setting up their own Facebook group and etc. that has really, I think, made them realise they are part of this really big group. And I think it's a really important, important part of Black British history that has just not been known about very widely. So just to rewind a little bit, Let's talk about the stationing of um, African-American GEIs in Britain during the Second World War. So how many um, African-American GEIs were in Britain and what do we know about their reception? Okay, so in terms of the number of GEIs generally that passed through Britain, it's estimated that there were 3 million GEIs, of which approximately 8% were African-American. So... 240,000, never any one time, but they will, you know, we're still talking there will be well over 100,000 at any one time. So quite large numbers, <laughs> very large numbers. Um, a lot of people actually had very positive things to say about them initially. Um, and the, the, the government wanted to kind of record the morale of the population. So they would do these surveys and they would ask about their attitudes to the Americans. And many felt more positive about the black Americans than the white Americans because they found the white Americans often quite bumptious and boastful. And they didn't find that with the black the black Americans. And so the white Americans complain about the fact that the beer was warm and that they there weren't any mod cons and very few cars and people didn't have radios. Whereas back in the States, many of the black GIs didn't have any of these things anyway. I mean, obviously, the, the, the warm beer might have been a problem. But um, there was that distinction that they found also the black GIs much politer. Um, and I mean, that, you know, which is interesting because I think, you know, back in the States, many came from both white and black came from the South. where there was Jim Crow laws. And then they were meeting white Britons who didn't talk to them in that way. I mean, of course, there was racism in Britain, but they weren't being talked to in the same way at all. And the women were much friendlier. I mean, of course, back in the the States, again, there was that that problem. And of course, the white GIs would get very angry, uh, upset about black GIs having relations with white women. So that was another thing. So, yes, so initial reception was they felt very positive about black GIs. But when the black GIs started having relationships with white women, some of that acceptance and and, and enthusiasm started to go. And when children were born, that was seen as pretty unacceptable, not by everyone, and there were some families who really accepted them. But, you know, it, it was, there was a lot of disapproval. Um, and it's very interesting. So Nella Last, who is a woman who wrote for Mass Observation, has been set up in 37 and had a lot of people writing diaries, um, et cetera, during the war. And she wrote, she came from the north of England, and she was a sort of low-middle-class woman who in many ways was quite liberal. But then when she saw these children... She writes about, I didn't think I objected to, you know, but I have some deep down feeling I have against these children, which is extraordinary. I mean, she at least was recognising, you know, her, her 
her racism, I and mean, she wouldn't call it that. But so I think I think it it started to wane some of that acceptance when they had relationships which led to children. So how much was the fact that these children were born outside of marriage a factor? Or was it really more race that was the issue here than the fact that they were, quote, illegitimate? I think illegitimacy was quite a big factor because I think we, we find it hard today, today to appreciate the notion of being called a bastard did mean you were illegitimate. And that was very shaming to have have a a black child who was illegitimate, you know, this was seen as beyond the pale in some people's eyes. So illegitimacy was, was again, it would vary with certain regions. I mean, certain pockets of working class where had, it had been accepted. But I think the vast majority, it was really seen as, as unacceptable to have an illegitimate child. And so, you know, some of these kids were called black bastards. And... It was that double whammy, and they talk about the double whammy of being illegitimate and being black. Obviously, I'm afraid the mothers are no longer alive. I haven't been able to talk to mothers. They would be well into their 90s, but some of the children can remember what their mothers had to go through. So one of them, Monica, who lived in St. Helens, just on the edge of Liverpool, her mother was spat out in the street, slapped someone else, Terry, who was growing up in Leicester, to a married mother... Um, when he went by with his mother, people in the street would pick up the the dustbin lids and smash them together. You know, it was a kind of declaration of disapproval. I mean, you know, appalling. Whereas in other areas, I think if you were kind of a very small community where everyone knew everybody, they might just be accepted. It did vary quite largely but yes yeah, some pretty awful stories about what the women went through and I think you think well how come these women gave up their children I can the pressure was put on them not just because of all these uh ideas about how awful to have a legitimate child whatever but they were pressurized often by their parents you know young women who were living at home by the parents by the local priest, often played a role, by the mother and baby's homes, because often they went to mother and baby homes and that they would try and take the child off them. So there were so many pressures on them. So those that kept their children in defiance of that, I think were really brave. So Monica's mother, for example, lived at home with her father. Her mother had died when she was only 10 and she had a number of siblings and she had to look after these siblings from a, you know from that young age of 10 so she had to leave school pretty much and her father didn't know she was going to have a, a mixed race child but the fact she got pregnant she he was absolutely furious and you know don't darken my door whatever and give up this child and the, the local priest came around and all these pressures and she was determined not to and she didn't and then you know when she had this black baby the father, the father had a fit but then he actually grew to love the child I mean it's you know it's interesting but the, the rest of the siblings forced her to stay at home the, the, the mother Monica's mother so she had a really difficult time and a, and a lot of these children were then brought up with stepfathers and half-siblings. What were some of the experiences that people remembered about those types of relationships? I think that was quite varied. So uh, Terry, who, who he and his twin were born to his married mother, who already had five children. <laughs> and when and his stepfather came back, he didn't separate um, from, from the mother, but he was always quite cold towards Terry. 
Carol Travis's mother, she um, was married and already had a daughter. And when the stepfather returned, he wanted a divorce. But then he found out that he wouldn't get custody of his daughter. So he stayed with her, with the mother. But if there was any argument, all this stuff about your bastard child would come up. So Carol said she 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 was she said she stuck out like a sore thumb. She was a sort of reminder of what mum had done. So you know she had a difficult relationship with her. On the other hand, um, one or two had very supportive uh, stepfathers, and they had other children. So I mean, one or two actually thought their stepfathers were their their fathers. So Janet Baker, when she she was born, I mean, the, her mother and her stepfather already had children, but she was taken as one of um, one of the children. And she thought until her mother died when she was 12, she thought that he was her father, despite the fact that all this name calling. And her stepfather, who she called out, would, would defend her. So, I mean, there were one or two really terrific stepfathers. But on the other hand, there were some who stayed but were really horrible. So John Stokely, who, um, whose mother who lived in Weymouth, whose mother had a, had him when the father the stepfather was away. When the stepfather came back, he didn't divorce, but he forced the mother to um, stay indoors except for two hours every week to go shopping, and really treated her appallingly. and And he said, "Well, divorce was very difficult in those days, you know." Anyway, so I, I think there was a huge variety. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It is a very interesting episode in British history where you see this deep ambivalence about having non-whites present, you know, having these mixed-race children as part of the, the British population. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So for those children whose mothers were pressurised into giving them up, um, many went into children's homes, and um, some were up for adoption. What can you tell us about those, those processes? Yeah, I mean, after the war, in that period in, in the late 40s, the adoption society, there were adoption societies that were, that were private. And they 
tended not to take black and mixed race children on their books. They said they were too hard to place. This was the term they used. Um, and there was a big demand to adopt children, but not for these mixed race children. Um, so very few of the people I've interviewed were adopted. A number were, especially from this place, Honeycott House. So Honeycott House was well, it's still there. It's, it's um, now a hotel, but it's, it's a rather beautiful house in Somerset that belonged, I think it still belongs to the National Trust, and it was requisitioned by Somerset County Council initially to turn it over to be um, a home for evacuated kids. But actually what was happening were a lot of these mixed-race kids were coming onto their books from married mothers, and so it became a home for these mixed-race kids. And it was staffed by very young 16, 17-year-old nursery nurses who were very loving. And they had this wonderful time, apparently. You know, the people who, who were, people I've interviewed who were there, they just said it was, you know, none of them had parents, they, so they didn't know what parents were. They just had this very loving time. They just thought they had these, all these brothers and sisters and they shared everything and it was just lovely. And the, um, the main health visitor... Um, of Somerset County Council, Celia Bangham, she, she had this big quest to get these children adopted and she wanted also to get them to the States. But she really used to set up these kind of photographs of them in rows and, and, and try and encourage people to adopt. So a number of them did get adopted, not the boys on the whole, the girls, because it's much harder to adopt boys then. But, you know, they really are the minority, the adoption. So many of them were fostered for a short period of time, um, often not very successfully. Um, I mean, a few were very successfully. So um, Tony Martins, who was at Bernardo's, he was adopted when he was five by a family in, in Cambridgeshire who had already got 12 Bernardo's children. He was the only mixed-race child, the rest were white. But he said he was just totally accepted by them and they became his mum and dad. And he, although he was never formally adopted, he just had a very happy childhood there and didn't experience racism until he left that little um, Balsham, this little village. So, you know, there's some very good experiences. Others were fostered later and really often didn't work. And I think often they weren't fostered till their teens. They'd never been in families. It was very hard to be in a, in a family and they, they couldn't really deal with it. So quite a few did grow up in children's homes and some of those children's homes... They were big. There was often quite a lot of sadism. I mean, I, I don't say that lightly. So someone called David Martins, you know, he was constantly hit. They were all hit. And it's just appalling, some of the people that, that staffed these homes. So I, th I think those that were in children's homes had a pretty bleak time, whatever, whatever their racial background, actually. So something I wanted to ask you about was the debate over whether these children should be, um, quote, returned to their fathers in America. How did that unfold? Right. So the woman I mentioned from Somerset, she's called the health superintendent. That's her name. So Celia Bangham, she gets a meeting with um, James Shooter Ede, who is the Home Secretary and the Labour government. And people today haven't heard of him, but he was Home Secretary in 1945. Okay, so in December 1945, she goes with the MP from Taunton in Somerset, and she meets him, and she says, look, I, I want these 
kids to be adopted either by their fathers or their father's um, relatives, or there are other people in the States, other African-Americans who want to adopt them. And he said, well, that's not really possible because at the time, the Adoption Act of 1939 that had come into force in 43, been delayed by the war, but that said that children could, British children could only be adopted by British subjects or by relatives. And this is long before DNA testing. So the fathers were only called putative and they weren't relatives, yeah? Because it wasn't because it wasn't confirmed that they were definitively their biological father. Yes, so fathers. there was no way of proving that they were the biological father at that time. Anyway, so um, he says it's not going to be possible. But there's obviously, you know, there's deep ambivalence by the British government about having these children. And I've read a whole lot of um, memos and um accounts going back and forth between the Home Office and the Foreign Office and the Colonial Office, all in the, the National Archives, about do we want these children? I mean, they, they want to send them back to the States on the one hand, <laughs> because, you know, it's still a notion of this is a white country. I mean, I know we have Windrush comes over in 48, but they're very ambivalent about that as well. That's another story. But anyway, so they don't really want these children, but they are very um, ambivalent about their relationship to the states. They don't want to be any more beholden. So, you know, America had come into the war in December 41. They had given money, there's a Marshall Plan, all this thing. They feel beholden to the states. And they feel that if they then, and this is a direct quote, if we dump these coloured waifs on them, yeah, that's not going to look so good. So they, they really, you know, are just debating it. Anyway, by the end of uh, 1947, beginning of 48, they actually change their mind and they think if it's in the best interest of the child, they should be able to go out to the States um, to the father's fathers and the father's family um, and possibly other African-Americans. But very few actually go. So for about a year, there seems to be an opening. And so one of the people I interviewed, Leon Lomax, is adopted. He was in children's home. He is adopted by his father. Um, and then they have another um, turnaround in um, by March 49. And then they say, no, we shouldn't do this. We don't want to be seen to not welcoming these children. You know, they kind of, oh, it, it's such ambivalence. It is a very interesting episode in British history where you see this deep, ambivalence about having non-whites present, you know, having these mixed-race children um, as part of the, the British population. It strikes me that for a lot of these children, their identities were really clouded in a lot of silence and a mystery that it doesn't seem that many people were very transparent with them about their backgrounds. It does seem that there was very much a emotional trend at the time to not say anything about it and pretend it hadn't happened almost. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think I think that is fair. I mean, I think generally around adoption in this period, there is still a tendency to not reveal the full story, whereas, you know, today people will always, well, one hopes, will always, you know, tell them about their heritage, etc. So I think it was very difficult for these children. I mean, so many of them have, have said that they really had a, a, a kind of 
fractured identity, perhaps not the term they use, but it, it, you know, they just weren't clear about who they were, where they came from. And I think not knowing the whole father's side of the family, generally, um, if they don't know, it can be um, something that's quite problematic. And I think particularly when they recognised that the fact that they that their skin colour was linked to the father that they knew nothing about, it sort of made the whole thing harder to understand and yet they didn't quite fit with what was becoming the black British population of West Indians you know they didn't quite fit so I think it was yeah very hard for them. So some of the interviewees that you spoke to did reconnect with their fathers later in life I wonder if you could share some of those stories. Yeah okay so well the vast majority have never met their fathers incidentally so um for various reasons, it was very, very hard. Proud of DNA testing, they're often not even given a name. Many of them didn't even have their own names. And the other, other big block was the American military. So the American military, um, when they were approached, said, "Well, look, you know, I've got, I know what um, the service number, or you know, I know all those things about my father. My mother's given me that, or it's on the birth certificate. Can you help me?" And they said, um, no, under privacy law, we're not, we can't help you. And a lot of those um, records were burnt in a fire, which was true in St. Louis in in 1970s. But they just came out against a, a, a blank wall. But um, one woman, Shirley McLeod, she was trying to find her father, and she she worked with civil rights lawyers in the States, and she got this overturned, so it's brilliant. So in 1990, um, this new law came in that the, that the military had to give the information they had. So that was, that was something, that was brilliant. But um, some of the other people have, 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 man- you know, have managed to find their, their fathers earlier through all sorts of means. So one, D- Dave Green, um, his mother was unmarried, and she knew the name, well, she said the name of her, of Dave's father was Dave Otis Green. That's what she said. Okay, she'd misremembered it because it was Dave Otis Green. Anyway, she said it. And um, she always, she showed a photo, she talked about him. So he got some phone numbers and he rang up. He had this name of, of David Green with an E at the end and he rings up his man and he says, um, I, I want to talk to David Otis Green. I'm David Otto Green. You're furious, you see. And he said, well, well, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he had this image of this kind of Germanic man at the end being absolutely furious. And then a few months later, he realises this is this must be the number, I think. And he rings again and said, I'm, I'm he said, and this man is saying, don't you know the news is on? Don't you know the news is on? And he said, well, I'm, I'm ringing from England. I'm looking for David Otis Green. I'm David Otto Green. He said, well, well, you know, were you were you in in Somerset in Britain? Yes. Well, and you know, did you know? And anyway, the mother. And then they talk talk for two and a half hours, and it's amazing. And then he goes out and meets his father. He meets his half brother. He has a fantastic time. I mean, he's died since, but um, the father. But you know, that was great. And then, I mean, there were a few few cases like that which were brilliant. So um, Richard Wright, um, he'd had this. He'd been fostered by some really horrible people who forced him to work night and day digging and he didn't have any schooling and he ran away from them. And 
he managed to find his mother who gave him an address for his father um, in the States. And he joined them. It's amazingly enterprising. Okay, he joined the Merchant Navy. He gets out near to where his father supposedly lives. And he just said, I'm just going to find, going to look, I'm just taking a little bit of leave, going to find my father. And he goes off and he goes to the, this address, this sort of um, near Rhode Island, and it, the area's been demolished. Nobody, you know, no home. So he doesn't know what to do. And then he's got this photograph of his father. And he goes into a bar and he goes around and shows this photograph and everyone backs off and, you know, what are you, the FBI, you know. And then a woman says, I know him, Augustus. Come back to my place and I'll ring him up. So he goes back and he first pretends he's his older half-brother who he he knows that he'd met. And then he his, his, his father says, he says... You're my son, aren't you? And he says, yes. I mean, he's now, you know, 20 or something. And he said, you're going to kill me? And he, he said, no. And they both cry. He said he'd never cry before. They both cry. And he had a wonderful relationship with him and his um, stepmother, the mother of that. So, he, you know, there are people like that who took amazing initiative in finding um, their fathers. But for others, it's just, you know, they finally... So Monica, she, her mother never told her, wouldn't tell her any name. And she finally got this name out of her, Paris Mac, which is a fantastic name, Paris Mac, um, but wouldn't tell her anything else at all. So you knew nothing, nothing at all. And then sort of early 2000, um, she's got a computer. She doesn't know how to use it, but her, her son is showing her what to do. She's, he, she, he says, just tell me anything, Mum. I'll type something in. I can show you how you can find things. She said, well, Paris Mac. So he types in, and up comes the name. And he says, don't touch it, don't touch it, you know, don't touch it. Um, it might go away. He said, Mom, it won't go away. And what it was was death certificate. You know. So he died six years previously. But she then um, manages to find two of his sisters, or rather she finds telephone numbers um, of two of the sisters, who are totally suspicious, as you can imagine, <laughs> ringing up, and they're kind of very elderly and in the 80s and a bit deaf, and she keeps ringing, and they keep putting down the phone, and she finally gets through to one of the um, daughters of one of the sisters and says, why have you been bothering my mother? And, I said, and he, she says, I, I, I think, you know, I think he could be my, I think he's my father. Do you mean your, you know, do you mean your father? And then she sends um, photographs I mean, by snail mail, sons photographs. And because she looked so like her father, there was never any question. They never said do DNA. And it was amazing. So she she can't travel because of a heart problem. But she said it really made the whole difference. She had a photograph sent of her father and she knew about him. And, you know, she just said that just was transformative. So I think even having a photograph. And now, as I say, the last three years... I've kind of encouraged people who haven't even had a name to go and get DNA testing. And then through GI Trace, they get help, particularly by a fantastic woman called Sally Vincent, who's like a detective. She can decipher the DNA. She makes the contact. She's brilliant. And they've now got photos, one or two of them, have several actually, of fathers and others have met half-siblings. So I mean, that has been transformative. So they're in their mid-70s and yet their lives, they feel, have just expanded enormously through this so it's been brilliant but you know for many it's taken a, a long long time to get there 
that was Lucy Bland. Her book, Britain's Brown Babies, the stories of children born to black GIs and white women in the Second World War, is available now. You can find a link in the show notes. Lucy also wrote a feature on this subject for BBC History magazine, in which she shares plenty more personal stories and photos of some of the GI babies. You can find that at historyextra.com forward slash GI babies. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Thank you.